Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. Of all the images of end-time prophecies, few are more memorable than the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I'm not talking about the wrestlers that we all know about, the four horsemen. Talk about the biblical ones. However, this is also one of the most misunderstood. Today we're going to try to gain a deeper understanding of this prophecy. And I thought this would be a simple little teaching that wouldn't go very long until I started digging into it. And man, did it get deep. And I've only scratched the surface of it, and it's kind of scary. The four horsemen are a prophetic look at our days and times. When they're viewed from a Hebrew perspective and placed into context for our days, they become very, very, very relevant. And I hope by the end of the teaching you see what I mean. Let's break down each horseman individually and see how it relates to our times. Each one has great prophetic meaning. We're going to start off with the white horse, and also when we get through this teaching, I think you'll see how interconnected these horsemen are. And by that, you'll see what I mean, but also the entire book of Revelation. We've always been taught the book of Revelation is in chronological order. Event number one happens, event number two, event number three, event number four. But when you start studying it from a deeper perspective, you find out that it's actually very interconnected. One thing is connected to something way over here, and it all mixes together. It's kind of like an orchestra. I heard it described as an orchestra. Several different sounds, but they all come together to make one music. Let's start off with the white horse. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Next I watched as the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living beings saying in a thundering voice, Go. Verse 2, I looked, and there in front of me was a white horse. Its rider had a bow and was given a crown, and he rode off as a conqueror to conquer. Notice the details that were given in this passage, and just as importantly, if not more importantly, the details that were not given, because that gives you a clue as to what's going on. The rider was given a bow and a crown, but he had no arrows. So how effective is a bow with no arrows? What can you do with a bow if you have no arrows to go into it? You really can't do a whole lot, can you? You can just kind of stand there and look like you're powerful. What does a crown represent? A crown represents political power. The rider of this horse is going to be a political force on a global scale. He will be a leader that appears to have everything under control and has the appearance of being the greatest political mind that ever existed. The bow with no arrows signifies that he will conquer without the use of weapons. It also shows that he has no real power, only the appearance of power. Is it possible to conquer the entire world without firing a shot? Would it be possible in today's environment to conquer a country, or the whole world for that matter, without using a weapon? I believe it is, and it's happening right before our eyes. Here's how it's going to happen. How can it be achieved? Through charm and charisma. That's how it can happen. And I believe that we have a modern-day example of how a charming and charismatic person can convince people to follow him without question. Now, let me start by saying I'm not preaching a political stance on either way. Let's dig deeper into the white horseman before I get carried away. All I really wanted to show you with those images and quotes is that it can happen. It happened in this country. It can happen worldwide. You get someone to give good speeches and make you feel good about what they're saying, it doesn't matter what you say. How you say something is usually more important than what you say. I can tell you all kinds of things. If I do it in the right kind of voice, in a soothing voice, you'll fall for it every time. Just like a snake oil salesman. That's how he, he does it. That soothing, pleasing voice. He tells you what you want to hear. That can happen on a global scale very, very, very easily. 
I think God used that to show the world this can happen, this is how it's going to happen. The white horseman is a very opportunistic leader. He is part of the elite that believe the world is overpopulated and that in order to have peace and prosperity, the human race needs to be reduced. These elitists believe in a form of government described as sustainable government. Its origins are rooted in evolution, the survival of the fittest. Now, we've all, always talked about evolution being taught in schools and how awful it is because they don't teach that God created the universe. And, you know, we pretty much left it at that. That's all it was about. We wanted, you know, God to be taught in, evolu- in school, not evolution. But when you dig deep into evolution, you find out that evolution really boils down to the survival of the fittest and that it's okay to destroy the weaker ones in, in the population. That's the dangerous part of evolution. And they've even gone so far now as to change the word evolution. Have you noticed that? It's not evolution anymore. It's adaptation now. Sounds better, don't it? Adaptation's not got that negative connotation that evolution does. See, that's how, that's how these things come about. Just like, and I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. I would dare say everybody in this room is pro-life. They believe that abortion is wrong. We are pro-life. People that are not are pro-choice, right? They've changed our name. Have you noticed that? Pro-life sounds good, don't it? We are for life. We want to protect life. What do they call us now? Anti-choice. Which one sounds more negative? Anti-choice means you're trying to keep somebody from making a decision for themselves. You're trying to control that person. Makes you look like the bad guy. It's all a psychological thing, and it works. That's what's scary is it works. That's why advertisers use this, this type of stuff. Sustainable government teaches that there are three forms of nations. The first one are the developed nations. These are the nations that are the wealthiest and in power. Coincidentally, these are the same countries that the elitists live in and control. Some good examples are the United States, England, and France. The next type of nation is a developing nation. Basically, these are the nations that do the bulk of the physical work for the developed nation. They're our workhorse in another, the best way to put it. We put them to work. Examples are India, South Korea, Malaysia, and Mexico. If you want to know what a developing nation, look on some products that you buy at Walmart, the grocery store, Target, wherever, and where, where do they say they're made at? China, India, South Korea, Malaysia, Mexico, all sorts of different countries, don't they? Those are developing nations. The final type of nation is an undeveloped nation. These are the poorest nations and suffer unbelievably. You, you usually see these on television, on the commercials, feed the children, they show you the starving little children. Examples are Ethiopia, Ghana, and the Sudan. Why is this important? Why are we talking about this in conjunction with the four horsemen? Because this type of philosophy is the first step in bringing about the three other horsemen. They're all interconnected. You can't forget that. It's not one after another. In the book of Jasher, if you've never read the book of Jasher, I highly recommend you go read it. You can get it online and just read it online. It's really, really a good book. It's, it really gets in some detail that we've never really studied before. But in the book of Jasher, we read about Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin was not just immoral relations, but it was their cruelty that really got God's attention. Now, when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, what sin are we always talking about? Sexual sins of some sort, usually homosexual sins, right? That wasn't the main sin in that in those cities. That wasn't the sin that even got God's attention. It was their cruelty. They were extremely cruel people. They would actually chain homeless people in the town square and let them starve to death. Now, let's take that. A a homeless person is pretty much a helpless person, aren't they? They're really down on their luck. They really can't do a whole lot, right? 
Let's think back several years ago to Florida. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Her name was Terry Schiavo. Big court battle about her. Courts come up and said what? That her husband could remove the feeding tube that kept the woman alive simply because she wasn't a productive member of society is basically what it was. She had to be taken care of. She wasn't able to take care of herself. She wasn't a vegetable. She had some awareness of what was going on. But we let her starve to death. And I think we've been punished ever since because of our cruelty. Look at our economy since then. What's happened to it? Kind of interesting, isn't it? We can't be a cruel people. God said, be ye kind one to another. The suffering that occurs in the underdeveloped nations, in my opinion, is intentional. These elitists are allowing these expendable people to die so that the elite can continue to live in comfort. With all of the food and resources we have available just in this country, why are there starving people in other parts of the world? Why are there starving people in our country? Cruelty. It goes back to that. People don't care about each other. They don't want to take care of each other. And also, the elitists are allowing these quote-unquote expendable people to die because it goes back to that whole mentality that population has to be reduced. God will not allow this to continue forever. He's kind-hearted and does not enjoy the suffering of these people. I don't know why it's still doing that. This could never happen in this country, could it? No one would ever espouse that type of philosophy, would they? A sustainable type of government, a sustainable people. We don't, we don't think that way in America, do we? Don't know what I'm doing wrong there. Nobody in America would approve of that, especially in the church, right? Everybody agree with that? Saddleback, is it a Baptist church or they're non-denominational? I'm not sure. Rick Warren, Saddleback Church. Anybody know if it's a Baptist church? It's a non-denominational. Okay, thank you. Health and Fitness Seminar, infomercial for sustainable development. I think that is the biggest church in the nation right now. They're talking about sustainable development. Let's just read it. This comes from an email I got from Alice uh, Scoggins, and I just I didn't post the whole thing because it's pretty long, but I thought put enough of it up to kind of bring it to light. Today on Patmos, we will discuss my experience at the Saddleback Health and Fitness Seminar this past weekend. I first arrived to Saddleback's campus only to be told that all parking lots were full. I drove across the street to see if there were any spots available in the business lot, and they were full too. I ended up parking in a housing tract and walked a mile or two back to Saddleback's campus. As I arrived, I overheard a parking lot attendant say they estimated about 6,000 people had come to the seminar. Now, first of all, I've never heard of a church that big that has parking lot attendants, that many parking lots, and 6,000 people coming to the seminar. I was a little late, so I was grateful to my nephew who went online and began to relay what was being said in the opening comments as I didn't want to miss what was to be the foundation of the talks that day. I was a little taken aback when my nephew told me the first speaker, Dr. Amin, made reference to the Egyptian pyramids and how they were built upon an idea, and that if man could build something like that all those thousands of years ago, what could he do today if he put his mind to it? I found that to be somewhat disturbing as the pyramids, no matter how impressive they were, represent the ancient pagan religions which got their start in Babylon when Nimrod gathered men, the community, together to commit idolatry by building a tower to honor themselves as gods. Kind of scary that supposedly a religious man is paying homage to the pyramids, isn't it? And yet here it was, the analogy that was chosen to illustrate this new idea Saddleback would launch their 52-week program with. No matter what Dr. Amin's intent was, I believe the analogy was appropriate and the subtle message is telling 
man can do anything he puts his mind to. Does that sound familiar? To begin, I'd like to state that Saturday, January 15, 2011, will go down in history books as the day Saddleback Church was sold a bill of goods. The masses had come out in droves for answers to their weight loss difficulties and health problems, and unbeknownst to them, they were being, they were being given a prescription for restructuring society and population control. The prescription goes by the name Agenda 21, a.k.a. Sustainable Development or Smart Growth. We've heard those terms before, haven't we? Heard them in the news. Agenda 21 is a published document put out by the United Nations with the intent to put limits on population and to restructure nation-states into a global society. Rick Warren's new friends had dubbed it the Daniel Plan, God's Prescription for Your Health. A more appropriate title would have been Sustainable Living, Destroying Inalienable Rights, One Community at a Time. By the time I settled into listening more intently, the second speaker, Mark Hyman, began. It didn't take too long to figure out what the basis of his message was. He said, we need to heal with community. He termed this as accompaniment. We're here for the sake of each other. This plan is our way out. This plan saved me and, in fact, will change the world. Saddleback was being told they were a test community to show the world how to live healthy and sustainably. When I heard these words, my heart sank. I knew which buzzwords to listen for, and he was hitting them all. The audience was told that they would be champions in health to show the world what living sustainably was all about. But Dr. Hyman is a leftist who is more than a champion in health. He's a change agent for the global elite, as is Dr. Oz and Dr. Amin. Dr. Hyman is the founder and medical director of the Ultra Wellness Center. He advises Dr. Oz's health core group, and he's a nominee to President Obama's advisory group on prevention, health promotion, and integrative and public health. I smell an agenda here. I went online and I just basically copied and pasted part of the UN Agenda 21. You can go read it for yourself and I encourage you to. Now it's a very long document. There's a lot of dry legal talk in it, but there's parts of it that you really need to read and I think I've got most of them. Section 3.8, governments with the assistance of and in cooperation with appropriate international, non-government and local community organizations should establish measures that will directly or indirectly do the following. Generate profitable employment and productive occupational opportunities compatible with country-specific factor endowments on a scale sufficient to take care of prospective increases in labor force and to cover backlog. The ones highlighted in red, that's what I highlighted, which kind of scared me. With international support where necessary, develop adequate infrastructure, marketing systems, technology systems, credit systems, and the like, and the human resources needed to support the above actions and to achieve a widening of options for resource-poor people. High priority should be given to basic education and professional training with international support. doesn't give any kind of limits there, does it? Pretty much they can go and do whatever they want, wherever they want. Pro- provide substantial increases in economically efficient resource productivity and measures to ensure that the local population benefits inadequate measure from resource use. Empower community organizations. That sounds kind of familiar. Empower community organizations and people to enable them to achieve sustainable livelihoods. Here's a good one. 
set up an effective primary health care and maternal health care system accessible to all. What have we been going through for the last two years? What kind of fight has Congress and the whole nation been going on about? Health care. Everybody get government-funded health care. Section F, consider strengthening developing legal frameworks for land management, access to land resource, and land ownership, in particular for women and for the protection of tenants. That should scare you right there. Developing legal frameworks for land management. It's a fancy way of saying they can come in and take your land if they want to. Rehabilitate, excuse me, rehabilitate degraded resources to the extent practicable. Practicable. Daniel, can you give me my drink there? And introduce policy measures to promote sustainable use of resources for basic human needs. Rehabilitate degraded resources. Thank you. What does that mean? Where are the specifics at in this document? What's a degraded resource? They could say this river over here is a degraded resource and they need to rehabilitate it and take everything around it, couldn't they? My parents have got a creek running on their property. That could be a, de- uh, they need to rehabilitate that degraded resource and take their property from them. Could happen to any of us. Establish new community-based mechanisms and strengthen existing mechanisms to enable communities to gain sustained access to resources needed by the poor to overcome their poverty. Implement mechanisms for popular participation, particularly by poor people, especially women, in local community groups to promote sustainable development. And now a few scary ones, as if those aren't scary enough. Section J. Implement as a matter of urgency in accordance with country-specific conditions and legal systems measures to ensure that women and men have the same right to decide freely and responsibly on the number and spacing of their children and have access to information, education, means as appropriate to enable them to exercise this right in keeping with their freedom, dignity, and personally held values, taking into account ethical and cultural considerations. In other words, give them all these rights for their freedom, their dignity, and personally held values, but take into account ethical and cultural considerations. The ethical and cultural considerations will be set by them, not by the people they're talking about. If you don't read this document carefully, that's what they're saying. Yes, we'll let you do what you want to do, what you feel is right, as long as it lines up with what we think. Government should take active steps to implement programs to establish and strengthen preventative and curative health facilities, which include women-centered and women-managed, safe and effective reproductive health care and affordable, accessible services as appropriate for the responsible planning of family size in keeping with freedom, dignity, and personally held values. There it is again, taking into account ethical and cultural consideration. So, Let's just be straight up and be honest here. What is reproductive health care? It's abortion. Plain, flat, simple abortion. Once again, we've got that whole psychological thing again. Abortion sounds bad. Nobody likes abortion. But when you change it to reproductive health care, it sounds all nice and pretty now, doesn't it? Well, no one wants to take someone's reproductive health care rights away, do they? That's what they do. They make it sound a lot better than what it is. Then they throw in that last sentence, taking into account ethical and cultural consideration. Once again, their ethical and their cultural considerations. Doesn't matter what you think or what you believe, it's what they say. Programs should focus on providing comprehensive health care, including prenatal care, education and information on health and responsible parenthood. That's what we need, the UN telling us about responsible parenthood. 
and should provide the opportunity for all women to breastfeed fully at least during the first four months of postpartum. Programs should fully support women's productive and re- reproductive roles and well-being with special attention to the need for providing equal and improved health care for all children and the need to reduce the risk of maternal and excuse me, child mortality sickness. Is that not amazing? They're talking about all this. You know, provide women all these rights and support that they need, but who, what country is on the UN uh, Council for uh, Women's Rights? Anybody want to guess what, there's one country in particular on that, on that council. Iran. Is that not the most ironic thing you've ever heard? Women's rights and Iran are two things that should not be said in the same sentence. They beat their women, they abuse their women, they keep their women, I mean, it's horrible when you read about the thing. They stone their women if they get raped. Now, where's the justice in that? A woman is raped and she gets stoned and the man is let off. But that's one of the countries we've got on the council for women's rights. Now, is it just me or does that make no sense whatsoever? Actively seek to recognize and integrate informal sector activities into the economy by removing regulations and hindrances that discriminate against activities in those sectors. Remove regulations and hindrances that discriminate against activities. If your county passes an ordinance and they don't like it, then they can just get rid of it. Consider making available lines of credit and other facilities for the informal sector and improved access to land for the landless poor so that they can acquire the means of production and reliable access to natural resources. In many instances, special considerations for women are required. Strict feasibility appraisals are needed for borrowers to avoid debt crisis. Improved access to land for the landless poor. Now, the way to translate that is, you have too much land, we're going to take this land from you and give to this person. That's how you translate that. Adopt integrated policies aiming at sustainability in the management of urban centers. That's cities, by the way. Undertake, this is probably the scariest one, undertake activities aimed at the promotion of food security and where appropriate food self-sufficiency within the context of sustainable agriculture. Who wants the United Nations in charge of food security? I didn't think anybody did. The next one, support research on and integration of traditional methods of production that have been shown to be environmentally sustainable. If you don't farm the way we say you should farm, you can't do it. You will do what we tell you to do. Provide the poor with access to fresh water and sanitation. Provide the poor with access to primary education. This is the United Nations that wrote this. This is a document from the United Nations straight off their website. It's an unelected body that is answerable to no one. Who, who voted for anyone in the United Nations? Did anyone of, of us in here vote for your UN representative? But look what the things they're doing to us. Will this affect any of you in here? How many of you own land? Could that affect you? How many of you have children or want to have children or have grandchildren? That could affect you. All of these things can affect you. Your garden. Who grows a garden? If you don't do it the way they say do it, guess what? Too bad. Kind of scary. Let's move on to the red horseman. I'm going to try not to keep you two hours and 21 minutes like, you know, Daddy usually does. Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth 
and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. The red horseman will be taking peace from the earth. Never in the history of mankind has this been more evident. Is there any peace in the world right now? Show me a country that's at peace right now. Here's a list of current conflicts going on in the world right now. And you can add Egypt to this one. So, Africa, 16 countries at war, 42 conflicts between militia, guerrillas, and separatist groups. In Asia, there's 11 countries at war and 35 conflicts between militias, guerrillas, and separatist groups. In Europe, there's nine countries at war and 19 conflicts between militia, guerrillas, excuse me, and separatist groups. In the Middle East, there's seven countries at war and 37 conflicts between militia, guerrillas, and separatist groups. In the Americas, there's three countries at war and six guerrilla-type conflicts. So in all, there's 45 wars involving nations and 139 conflicts involving separatist, guerrilla, or militia groups. Is that not amazing? I didn't realize that till I did the research on it. There's 45 countries at war. That's amazing. In our, in our, our world, there's 45 nations that are war. And then there's 139 more conflicts involving those. And I'm sure there's more on top of that that we don't know about. Now, you know, you guys, if you ever heard me teach, you know I love Gematria. I've always loved it. But before I get into that, even not counting the wars, there's no peace anywhere, is there? Even in these little communities we live in, is there peace now? You know, when I was growing up, you left your keys in the car, you left the doors unlocked, you didn't worry about it. Do you do that now? Kind of scared to now, aren't you? All right, the gematria on that, there's 45 wars and 139 conflicts. That breaks down to 184. If we break 184 down, we get 13. 13 is the number for rebellion, apostasy, and corruption. Do you think rebellion, apostasy, and corruption could uh, come from war, come from peace, for, for, excuse me, from no peace? Could that be the reason we're having all those wars and conflicts? Because we're rebellious, we're apostate, and we're corrupt? Does Scripture have anything to say about those three things in end-time prophecy? In Jude chapter 1, verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, we all know those three men have something in common. They wanted to do what? They wanted to do their thing their way instead of God's way. Change God's commandments around, do it our way, and we'll get the same results. But we see what happened. They were rebellious. And what happened to all three of these men? They all paid the ultimate price for it. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself being God. Now, going back to that, like we talked about the five horsemen, the world is set up to put someone in power just like that, aren't we? I mean, we're on the precipice to do that. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 7, I said, surely you will revere, revere me, accept instruction, so her dwelling will not be cut off according to all I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out them, pour, pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will, will be devoured by my, the fire of my zeal. We're not quite to that point, but we're rapidly approaching it. Let's do a quick little word study on those three words. Rebellion comes from the Strong's Hebrew 5493. It means to turn aside, to depart. It's spelled with a sheen, a vav, and a resh. 
And the word picture that I get from it is an El, a pierced El Shaddai will destroy. And he just told us that in Zephaniah that he was going to for that very thing, rebellion. Apostasy means to return, to turn back. It comes from the Strong's 4878. And it's spelled with a sheen, a bob, and a bait. It said the pierced El Shaddai's own house is the word picture I got from it. Corruption. That comes from the Strong's 7843. It means to destroy, to corrupt, go to ruin, and decay. And it's spelled with a sheen, a hit, and a top. And the word picture from that is a divided covenant of El Shaddai. So let's put those three word, those three word pictures together and see what we can find out. Now word pictures, in case you don't know, they are very personal, something that you see. They're not the gospel truth. I may get something, Jolene may get something else, Annette may get something from that, from something else. So, it's just something that I personally saw. But what I got from it, a pierced El Shaddai will destroy a house that has divided his covenant. And I think we're on our way to, to, for that happening now, too. How does this relate to us? In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slave, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you all correct. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes, cause the soul to pine away. Also you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. The red horseman will have a much easier task due to our disobedience. We're making it very easy for the red horseman because we're disobedient. The disobedience will also help assist another horseman later on that we'll discuss. Are you allowing disobedience to take away peace from you? I think it's something we all need to ask ourselves. Are we disobeying God? And how much peace is in our lives? If we're having a lot of turmoil and trouble in our lives, we need to do some self-inspection and find out, okay, am I disobeying God somewhere? Is this why the peace is being taken from me? He, he speaking of uh, the Red Horseman, works in another way. He will be carrying a great sword. I like to look and read Scripture and find the little details that's usually overlooked and dig deeper. So we never really heard much teaching on the sword that the, the Red Horseman carries. Sword, makome, I think is how you say that Greek word, and I am definitely no Greek expert. I am no Hebrew expert. I barely can speak English, so forgive me. The fair definition means to fight. Of armed combatants or those who engage in hand-to-hand struggle. Of those who engage in a war of words to quarrel, to wrangle, or to dispute. Isn't that interesting? The Red Horseman's going to use a sword, and yes, it, it's used in the way that we think to cause war and destruction and death in the, on the battlefield. But his sword also represents those who engage in a war of words, those who quarrel, those who wrangle, and those who dispute. Isn't that interesting? Now, we like to think of the Red Horseman as other people. They're causing the Red Horseman's job to be a lot easier. But how, much are, how easy are we making it as, as true believers for him to come on the scene? Are we having wars of words? Are we having quarrels? Are we wrangling, disputing with each other? Don't you think it's time we bury the hatchet and be done with it and get along? Do we not have enough enemies in this world? I mean, if you don't have enough enemies, please raise your hand. I mean, everybody hates us. I mean, non-believers, believers, Catholics, Muslims, Baptists, Methodists, they all hate us. 
So we have enough enemies. That's something we've got plenty of. We don't need more. We all need to get along a lot better. The Red Horseman will also cause quarrels and fights, like I said. This is one of the most dangerous threats to Torah-observant believers. It's when we start quarreling and fighting amongst ourselves. Quarrels and fighting amongst ourselves will get people killed in the tribulation. We cannot afford to let the Red Horseman gallop through our camp. When he comes through our camp, there's going to be a wake of bodies behind him that's going to be horrible. And I don't want to go through that. I don't know about the rest of you, but I don't want to go through that. We've got to stop this quarreling and this fighting and this silliness, for goodness sakes. It's ridiculous, is it not? We Not only do we have enough enemies, we got enough problems on our hands. We don't need to create more for ourselves. Let's move on to the black horseman. He's interesting too. Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and wine. The black horseman arrives in a peculiar method. The symbolism is very relevant for our time. Let's examine it closer. Recession is upon us. The largest American companies are failing. State governments are going broke, unable to pay for basic services. I think that's pretty obvious, isn't it? We are definitely in a recession. The United States has incurred more debt in the last two years than it has incurred since the beginning of the nation up to and including the past President Bush. The United States is a debtor nation. Now, I did this teaching several months ago, so this number is actually higher than what I'm going to show you. How much do we owe as a nation? $14 trillion we owe as a nation. Is that not unbelievable? And you can go online and look for the debt clock. Go to Google and, and Google debt clock sometimes. There's a clock, a real-time clock. You can, watch, you can watch the debt go. It's scary when you watch it. For those of you who like a visual, that's what $14 trillion looks like in numbers. One, two, three, four. That's 12 zeros behind that 14. Is that not unbelievable? That's what we as a nation owe. Now, let me rephrase that. That's what they tell us we owe as a nation. If we were really honest about it and really had honest books, it's probably more like $128 trillion. It's about ten times what we've got there. How many of your taxpayers in here? How many of you like paying taxes? You enjoy it? That means $110,000 per taxpayer. So I need everybody to pony up $110,000 and we'll start getting this paid off. Who has $110,000 sitting around? That's what I thought. Nobody has that kind of money sitting around. But that's what we owe. $110,000. Is that not unbelievable? That we as a nation owe $110,000. And it's more likely... Ten times that amount. So you probably owe about a million per taxpayer. So if you're a married couple and both of you work, that's 110000 for each of you, not just as one couple, each of you. So like Gene and Alex over here, that, they both work. They both pay taxes. So they, they need to give me 220000 So come on. They go a long way to help me. Come on, give me some money. Moving on, the scripture describes superinflation for a quart of wheat or the amount for a daily consumption or daily bread costs a denarius, which is the Roman equivalent for a full day's wage. The same equation is given for barley. Superinflation means that all the money you currently earn in one day is the price you would need to pay for the amount of food you would need for one day. Now, think about that for a minute. You work eight hours a day or more for some people. Everything you do that you make just gets you by for that one day for food. What are you supposed to do about everything else? What about your house? What about power? What about anything else? How are you supposed to get back and forth to a job? 
if everything you make goes for food. Medicine, where's that going to come from? Interestingly, the oil and wine are not harmed. What does that mean? This indicates that the government will manipulate the economy to ensure that it is properly fed. And by it is properly fed, I mean the elitists will be properly fed. You know the expression, in bad times the poor get poor and the rich get richer. We're in those times right now, aren't we? Rising commodity costs are one of the major factors behind growing wave of civil unrest across the Middle East and North Africa. Okay, I'm sorry, I messed that up there. You have to forgive me. This report comes from, from CNN, okay? So it's not one of those kooky websites, you know, that talk about all the crazy stuff. This is from CNN. I'm not a CNN fan, but they're pretty mainstream. They're not, you, they don't report the crazy stuff. Like I said, I'm not a fan, so don't quote me on that. From London, world food prices rose to an all-time high in January, according to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization. The FAO's food price index measures the cost of a basket of basic food supplies, sugar, cereals, dairy, oils, fats, and meat across the globe. The index rose by 3.4% in January, the seventh monthly increase in a row to its highest level since records began in 1990. The cost of sugar, cereals, dairy, and oils and fats all went up last month while meat prices remained steady. Responding to the FAO's announcement, Oxfam said that the latest price rises should ring alarm bells in capitals around the world. If prices remain high, it will be just a matter of months before the world's poor are hit by another major food crisis, said Chris Leather, the charity's policy advisor. Governments need to act now and act together to stop the rot. What has happened in Tunisia and is happening right now in Egypt, but also the riots in Morocco, Algeria, and Pakistan, are related not only to high unemployment rates and to income and wealth inequality, but also to the very sharp rise in food and commodity prices. Guys, this is for real. This is not imagined. This affects every human being on the planet. And the other thing, it gives credibility to those of the sustainable growth believers, too. Prices keep going up. Everybody's going to suffer, so we've got to kill some of them all. See how they're interconnected? You've got one horseman causing starvation which helps the white horseman get his plan started. And who's been to the grocery store lately? Have prices went up? I mean, my wife and I went uh, this past week, and we got like four bags for $90. And we didn't get anything special. Two of us. That's all we bought for, two of us, and it was 90 bucks. Unbelievable, the price of food. I don't know how people with families do it. You know, working people with two or three kids, I do not know how they make it. I would not know what to do. We could discuss the economic conditions all day long, and I can bring you graphs and numbers and bore you to tears with all this, but we feel it every day, so I don't need to do that. Instead, let's focus on the scales the horseman is carrying. That's another little detail we've never really looked at. The word scales comes from the Greek word zugos, and it means a yoke, as in bondage. Leviticus chapter 26:13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you all correct. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Matthew 11:29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. 
verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's from Yeshua's word. The word yoke has an interesting word picture. It comes from the Hebrew word alal, which means to act severely, deal with severely, make a fool of someone. It's spelled with an ayin, a lamed, and a lamed. And the word picture I got from that is the shepherd's yoke leads to knowledge. And we know that Yeshua is the good shepherd. So if we take his yoke on, it leads to knowledge. The gematria is the letters are 70, 30, and 30, and it breaks to 130. And then that breaks down to 4, which is the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? The word picture is the shepherd's yoke leads to knowledge, but the number meaning breaks down to the Messiah. So the Messiah's yoke leads to knowledge. And what yoke does the Messiah ask us to put on? The Torah. Well, let's move on to the last horseman, and I promised you we wouldn't be too long tonight. It's the dappled horseman. Revelation chapter 6, verse 7. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. The revelation judgment of the ashen horse is fourfold. It involves famine, or the lack of food, wild beasts, which is the threat of animals, sword, or warfare, and plague, or diseases. The prophet Ezekiel explained how severe these judgments would be on earth should God decide to judge in this manner. Let's examine what he says about famine first. We've already talked about it, but we'll deal briefly with it. The lack of food. It's a real problem in the world. We don't like to hear those reports. We just don't like to pay attention to them. Do you remember the complaint from various quarters when we initiated the program to grow corn to make ethanol, thus significantly reducing food stocks used elsewhere in the world? Everybody remember ethanol? It's made out of corn. It's going to save the world. It's going to get us off uh, dependence of foreign oil, right? How's that worked out for us? Had a consequence to it, didn't it? Had an environmental consequence first in that it cost just as much energy to produce ethanol as it did to drill for oil. So it, you know, it didn't help any. And that's assuming you believe them, which I usually don't. So it probably means it took more energy to make ethanol than it does to drill for oil. Let's do a little research on the corn usage around the world. We're going to use Mexico as a, an example. 40%, 47%, excuse me, of the Mexican diet is based on corn. It takes 2.4 pounds of corn a day to feed a hungry person. It takes 22 pounds of corn to make one gallon of ethanol. There are 42 gallons of refined gas or ethanol in one barrel of oil. So we break it down, it works out like this. 22 pounds of corn times, let's just say, 1 million gallons of ethanol used in one day worldwide. That means 9,166,666 people could have been fed for that one day if we had used, used it for food instead of ethanol. You think God's going to punish us for our cruelty for holding back this food so that we can have more gas for our cars? The threat of animals. Animals have become more important than people. Now, pets are a gift from God, and it's wrong to abuse or mistreat animals in any way, shape, or form. But many times it's taken to the extreme. Now, we, we have pets. We love them. We take care of them. We spoil them. I know a lot of us are the same way. I know Jolene's the same way with hers. She spoils hers rotten, too. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't let anyone tell you that that's wrong, because it's not. Let's look at a few examples of the extreme, though. Most Americans would do anything in their power to save the life of a loved one diagnosed with a terminal illness. But most people aren't members of the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals. 
This radical group is dedicated to a total animal liberation, and I mean total animal liberation. They've made it clear that given the choice between saving the lives of sick people and lab rats, rodents should win out every time. So if you have a sick loved one and something could be, they can do something to a rodent to lead to a cure, they shouldn't do that. Let the rat live. A Texas appeals court has affirmed a lower court decision that nine chimpanzees and monkeys that were brought to the primarily primate sanctuary in 2006 do not have a legal right to sue. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals had sought to gain legal standing for the primates transferred from the Ohio State University to the sanctuary after they were retired. They can't sue, but apparently chimpanzees and monkeys can run for Congress, because that's pretty much what we've got running right now. And you think I'm kidding, that's why I put this next one. Tax deductions for pet care expenses proposed. Pet care expenses would be a tax deduct would be tax deductible under a new measure introduced by U.S. Representative Thaddeus McCotter, a Republican from Michigan. You think that would be a liberal Democrat, but this is a Republican. Posted in uh, August 5th, 2009. House Resolu Resolution 3501, commonly referred to as the Humanity and Pet Partner Through the Years, or the Happy Act, would amend the Eternal Revenue Code to allow an individual to deduct up to $3,500 for qualified pet expenses. Qualified pet care expenses is defined as amounts paid in connection with providing care, including veterinary care, for a qualified pet other than any expense in connection with the acquisition of the qualified pet. Qualified pet is defined as a legally owned, domesticated live animal. It does not include animals used for research or owned or used in conjunction with a trade or business. We are $14 trillion in debt, and they want to give a $3,500 tax deduction for taking Fido to the vet. Now, is this wrong? Is worse? This is insane. This is beyond insane. This might be the craziest thing I ever heard. And that includes the study they recently did with this quote-unquote stimulus money. They paid a researcher $150,000, and I know that's not a lot of money to the government, but it's a lot of money where I come from. They paid this guy $150,000 to research the reason hog manure smells. You know what? Give me half that money and I'll give you an answer for it real quick like. $150,000 to tell them why hog manure smells. I think any of us in this room can tell them why. But we got to spend $150,000 on it. Providing pet owners the opportunity to detect Pet care expenses is an important step towards ensuring that pet owners provide adequate veterinary and other necessary pet care. It encourages responsible pet ownership and will hopefully reduce the abandonment of pets by people struggling as a result of the economic downturn. So the economy's down, so we need to give people a $3,500 credit so they can deduct their pet care expenses. But we've got people living around here on Social Security that draw four and $500 a month. And I've seen people with checks like that. I work in a bank, so I've seen these, I've seen these little old women come in, their husbands have died, and they bring a $500 check in that they have to live on for a month. Anyone in here tell me how you live on $500 a month? How can you pay for electricity, food, gas, a telephone? Those are just some of the very necessary things. Let's don't talk about rent if they've got rent if they don't own their home. Let's not talk about anything else. I mean, just food, electricity to keep the lights on and the heat going, and medicine. How do you do it on $500 a month? The fact is you can't do it on $500 a month. You can barely do it on $500 a week with that. 
much less a month. And you know as you get older, you get more sick, so you have more expenses. I get fired up when I read stuff like that. I'm sorry. Human fetuses can be legally killed. Turtles, however, cannot. If you destroy a turtle, you will pay a hefty fine. If slaying an unborn baby, the government both funds you and supports your right to do so. Kind of scary, isn't it? That we'll protect a turtle, but we won't protect a child. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God is going to judge mankind when he places the creation before the creator. And this whole go green movement and all this environmentalist, they put the create the creation before the creator every day. Diseases or plagues. The threat of disease is constantly upon us now. I could go on for days discussing superbugs and antibiotic-resistant diseases, but I think we're all familiar with that. We know how, how sickness is spread now. I want to know why diseases are spreading. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14, But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. And that passage sounds familiar. We read it earlier. Remember when I told you it comes out later? Here we go. Let's look at the word consumption, the Hebrew root word. Anybody know how to pronounce that word? Huh? Sakapa. I think that's how you say it. You can see it on the screen. You know what I'm talking about. Like I said, I'm not a Hebrew expert by no means. What it means is a ceremonial, ceremonially unclean bird. A ceremonial unclean bird and a disease that causes fever. Now, does that sound familiar to us? We hadn't heard about it in a while. It kind of went under the radar. But could that be bird flu? How does bird flu work? It wastes away and causes the soul, and the word soul there is the same word for breath, to pine away. Most flus incubate in the nasal passages. Where does bird flu incubate? In the lungs. Causes the breath to pine away, makes your breath go away. That's why it's so deadly. Is that a coincidence? I don't believe it is. Here's another question I never could answer. What is an ashen or a dappled horse? I know what a red horse is. I know what a black horse is. I know what a white horse is. I've seen those. I know what they are. I've never seen an ashen or a dappled horse. Never in my life. Also, why are the colors mentioned here? Why is it not all four brown or two white or all four white? Why are they these colors? Let's see what the scripture says. I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The word for ashen or dappled there is the word chloros. The Thayer definition is green, where we get, where we get the word chlorophyll. We talk about how plants grow, what makes them green, chlorophyll. Well, the root word is chloros, and it's the same word used there, so it's chloros. So it's not a dappled horse or a gray horse or a spotted horse we've learned, and we've been taught over the years. It's a green horse. Who's seen a green horse before? Kind of different, isn't it? Is that significant? God wants us to be aware of his prophecies, but he also expects us to put in some effort. He's not going to spoon-feed us everything. He wants us to dig a little bit. He sometimes allows vagueness so that we'll be forced to dig deeper. He doesn't put everything out in plain sight for us. Sometimes he hides it and makes us search it out. The colors of these horses are extremely relevant to our day and time. 
Here's an interesting example. Let's see the Iraqi flag. Isn't that interesting? White, black, red, and green. You think God was kind of saying, hmm, maybe Islam, the Arabic culture, may be linked to these four horsemen. So it's just Iraqi flag, right? Here's the Jordanian flag. Black, red, white, green again. Here's the Kuwaiti flag. Once again, we have those four colors. Why is it not black, yellow, white, and red? Why does it match up exactly with the four horsemen? The flag of Afghanistan. Same colors again. The Syrian flag. The same colors again. The Palestinian flag. This is the Islamic conference flag. Got all the colors again. All the four horsemen are, are here. Here's an interesting one. The Welsh flag. Black, green, white, and red. Same color as the four horsemen. There's a certain Welshman that could perhaps be Islamic that may have some end time significance to him. We'll discuss that some other time, not, not at this teaching. The pan-Arab colors are black, white, green, and red, and individually have their origins in the flags of prominent empires and dynasties in the Arab history. They were first combined in the flag of the Arab Revolution in 1916. They are used currently in the flags of Jordan, Kuwait, Palestine, the Sahari Arabic, Arab Democratic Republic, Somaliland, Sudan, and the United Arab Emirates. The subset of the pan-Arab colors are the Arab liberation colors, in which green is less significant. These appear on the flags of Egypt, Iraq, Syria, and Libya. So all these countries have some form of these four colors in them somewhere. Most people don't realize that the four horsemen are mentioned long before the book of Revelation and that there are more clues given, given about them and to their mission. We're going to jump to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. And if you do some research, you find out that bronze is the is symbolic of judgment. Just want to throw that out there. Verse 2, with the first chariot were red horses, and with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my lord? The angels replied to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. With one of them, the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they're eager to patrol the earth. And if you do a word study on that word strong, it actually goes back to red. And he said, Go patrol the earth, so they patrol the earth. Then he cried out and spoke to me, saying, See those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. These passages show us that the horsemen go in different directions. That's why it's important not to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. Think they're separate. That's why you need to bring them together. The book of Revelation is not a brand new book. It's all the prophecies into one book. All the prophecies in Revelation can be traced back to the quote-unquote Old Testament. These are clues as to where the destruction that these four horsemen will cause it's going to fall. Let's look a little closer. Now, I know this is kind of hard to see. But hopefully I can get it. So the white horsemen are going to go to the north country, and they're talking on a global scale here. So the, the white horseman is going to go to the north, somewhere in the northern hemisphere. Now, where are, and we talked about the white horseman. He's going to be a political leader on a global scale, very, very charismatic, very outgoing. People will flock to him. 
Where on this map do you think someone like that would come from? Would they come from the southern hemisphere? Probably not because they're so poor and have a lot of, a lot of other problems. They're not as educated either as we are up here in the northern hemisphere. My personal opinion, I'm sorry about that volume thing, is he's going to come from Europe somewhere. Now, I'm not going to go into that teaching. That's a long teaching. I won't go into that. But I think he'll come from Europe somewhere. The red horseman goes out into the whole earth. He's going to take peace from the entire earth. So he covers the whole globe. And we talked about that. We're sure that the, the red horseman has already taken peace from the earth. The dappled horseman, well, excuse me, we talked about the other. The black one is also economic. And he goes to the north. Now, which hemisphere, north or south, would be devastated more by an economic collapse? The north would be. The south is pretty much already already in an economic collapse. I mean, how much more poor can you get than Africa? What rich nation do you have in Africa? And that's the bulk of the southern hemisphere. But now, if you look at the northern hemisphere with Canada, the United States, all of Europe, and Russia, if they had an economic collapse, what would happen? Be devastation, wouldn't it? If we had to live like the people in the southern hemisphere did, we would be in bad shape. Now, the dappled horseman goes to the south. As you notice, there's a lot of Arab countries in the south, is there not? But we also learned that the dappled horseman is going to bring diseases. Now, what part of the globe is more susceptible to diseases right now? Would be the southern hemisphere because of, once again, they're already in a, a bad situation. Their economic situation is terrible, so preventative care is, is a joke. They don't go when they're sick, much less to prevent. So when you read Zachariah and you take that and you look at it on a global scale, you can kind of see where the four horsemen are going to land. The time to be ready is now. The horsemen are coming. Whether we like it or not, they're coming. And it is scary, I know. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I don't believe in a boogeyman and all that, but when I saw that today... That sent cold chills up my spine, up and down, back and forth, all around. And I know it's kind of hard to see on this screen. So after service, if you want to come up and look at it, we'll look at it closer. And I swear that it looks like a green horseman. But at one point, not only is it a green horseman, it's a green horseman with a chariot behind him. Now, let's, let's think for a minute. This is Egypt. Okay? Now, remember back to last week. What did we talk about in the Torah portion? Egypt got rid of a pharaoh that knew Joseph, and they got a pharaoh that didn't know Joseph, right? That was our Torah portion, the basic teaching of it. What's going on in Egypt right now? One of the only Arab countries that has. So he, quote, unquote, knew Joseph. Did he not? He knew how Joseph worked. He knew Joseph's beliefs. He knew that Joseph was a man of God. Who's coming into Egypt now? We don't know. But I'd be willing to bet that he doesn't know Joseph. And we just saw what looked like a green horseman going out. Now, we're trying to find out. It's kind of hard to see, but it, we're trying to find out which direction that horseman went. I don't know exactly where they're at. We don't know if he went north, south, east, west, or what. Shane Taylor's working on that for me to see if he can figure out which direction he went on. And if he went in the correct direction, I'm going to get really scared. And I know that's scary. I know we all think, oh, gosh, is that, is that the end? The four horsemen may be galloping through our camp now. They may be destroying the world. But we have a God that can do something like that. You can see all the points of it right there. It may be just a simple signal from God saying, yeah, it's going to get bad, but I'm still here. I'm here to protect you. I know what's going on. I've not forgot you.
With that, we'll go ahead and dismiss, and I hope everyone has a good week. Stay tuned to Solace Radio.